Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. And today uh, we're going to kind of be around different places, but we're going to be sort of focused on Psalm 133. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can plop it open. Usually if it's paper Bible, you let it fall in half and you're going to be somewhere in the Psalms and they're numbered. So just go to Psalm 133. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please don't panic. All the verses I'll be referencing and quotes and stuff will be on the screen. And we would love to give you a Bible and a readable English translation. It's very important to us that you uh, invest in scripture yourself rather than just kind of hearing what we have to say. Uh, I listened to Mr. Hobbs talking and he said that about myself and David. I think he was saying it as a crazy possibility, but maybe he's worried about us. He did say, if you hear us say something the Bible doesn't say, then you believe the Bible and not us. And he's right. Uh, We are all about scripture. That's our authority here at Hope Church. So we want you to be reading along with us, checking this stuff out and hearing what we have to say. As we start the new year, we found it important to review what we see as most important or what is mission central for Hope Church. Now, it's not an organization where we get to choose what that is. This is given to us by Jesus. He's the one that gets to decide how his church works and what his church values. And as we understand scripture, there are three words that really bring that together well. We use the word abide, and we use it because the apostle John used it a lot. And we find it very helpful to talk about our relationship with God. That's our most important thing. That's why we talked about it first. That was last week. Then we use the word love. Now, I'm sure you can understand why that word is very important for us, and especially in this context. We're talking about the love that you have for other believers or the love that takes place within a church. And then we talk about multiply, and that's going to be next week. But it's the way that the love of God that goes from a person, from God to a person, and then from people to other people that also know this Lord flows out of the church and into the world as it was always God's plan. Through Abraham, he said, all the families of the earth would be blessed. It was always his purpose to take a person, show him that person, God, and then use that person to show other people. That's always been the plan. That's what we see as important here. That's why you get language like what David said, where we are here to make disciples and plant churches. It all fits. All right. So today I want to talk about love or the love that we have for one another. And if you were with us through 1 John, we talked about it like 10 times. And I was telling Rachel, like, oh, I don't want to just like repeat myself. And she's like, A, nobody remembers what you said. B, <laughs> What's more important than this idea? Like, we need to hear this over and over again. And I agree. Uh, So we're going to talk about it again. So in Psalm 133, it's one of those where you say, I want to memorize a psalm. And maybe that was like one of your New Year's resolutions. You wanted to memorize a whole psalm. Well, 117 or 133 are pretty good. They're only like three verses. Here's Psalm 133. It says, Behold... How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Oh, Mitchell Cox walked in with his kids and his his kids were holding hands as they walked in. How good, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. What's it like? It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, 
on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. What's he saying? Well, this is a song of ascents. If you read through the Psalms as you get towards the back, maybe, I don't know, maybe the back 20%, you see that often. And it says a psalm of ascents or a song of ascents. And it's because in elevation they were rising as they would walk up to Jerusalem for the festivals that they would have where God would expect his people to come into the city, to come to the temple. And as they're singing the songs that they sing on their way up, one of the songs or one of the themes of those songs was how good it is when the people of Israel, this, this new family in God, dwell together. And they sought a metaphor for how good it is when brothers live together. And if you were writing a song... And I asked that it was time for you to write, and your theme was about how good it is when brothers dwell together in harmony. And you were like, what, what metaphor could I possibly use to get across this rich idea? I don't know how many of you would go <laughs> to this experience of seeing oil flow into the beard of Aaron. Uh, I, I'm going to take a minute with this illustration because I don't know how many of you feel that this communicates? But if you're reading through Scripture and you get to something that seems very odd, it's very helpful, especially if you have a good study Bible or somebody that you can talk to about it, and you do. This is what Hope Church exists to do, is to help each other learn about what God said. But when you get to those weird spots where something doesn't make sense, that's often something rich. And so if you'll take a time to do just a little bit of legwork, a little bit of homework, it'll often really sing. Now, this one was weird to me because I have a beard and it grows and then I shave it down and then it grows back out. And I, I do different stuff to try and make it as nice as I can. I use some of the product. You know, the hip world, the hipster world has created many different products for beards of oils and lotions and many different unguents that you can use if you want to kind of keep your beard healthy. I have never used a product like that and felt like Rachel was like checking it out. It's not an attractive thing, the beard. Like it hides the jawline, so maybe it could make your face look a little better than it did without a beard. But I don't know that I've ever oiled up a beard and thought like somebody was going to get excited about it. <laughs> the kids don't get in line to like watch dad oil his beard, you know. I don't, I don't know how many women see a big beard and want to get in there and just see what they find, you know. Like I, I don't know the attractiveness or the aesthetic appeal. So what is it that the psalmist is referencing when he's talking about oil? Dripping into the beard of Aaron. Well, Aaron was the priest. When God took the people of Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery and brought them to himself, he had Moses, who he used to be this deliverer. And through Moses, he gave the law to the people, this law that would govern them and allow them to understand what holiness looks like. Then he had Aaron, uh, Moses appoint his brother Aaron as the high priest. So there were several jobs that it was Aaron's job as the priest to do so that the people of Israel, who were sinful just like us, could nonetheless stand in the presence of a holy God. He was the go-between. As we know about Aaron, he was sinful like we are. 
there was all kinds of different things that would happen to, to purify Aaron so that he could then purify the people. There's a lot to it, and there's a whole Old Testament there. But with, what he's referencing here is an anointing that would take place of Aaron. When they would pour not just oil, but what does it say? Precious oil. Anointing oil on his head. And what did that represent? Well, that anointing represented God's special presence on Aaron. God's special presence on the one that would be the go-between, that would be the representative of people to God, but be the representative of God to people. And if you ever take the time to look at his outfit, what the, the priest would wear, it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. Read it. Maybe you'll just start buying me suits and I won't wear my shaggy jeans anymore and I'll stand up here and be really beautiful too. He would stand before the people and all of his items of clothing had intense meaning to them that would display something of who God was. And when they anointed him with oil, that oil would run down his face and down into his beard, onto his robes. And the people seeing it would celebrate if they understood, and the people of Israel did, that that meant God's presence was on their priest. That everything's right in the world because they are now united again with God. He's saying that it's, it's that good. Same thing with the dew, the dew of this high mountain that would rest on all of the mountains of Zion, meaning that the place, the land was watered, that the, the land could produce, that it would be a green mountain instead of a desert. It would become a, a garden. Boy, that's really beautiful. And if you get into the New Testament, Jesus references the same idea, that this oneness that takes place person to person is reflective of the oneness that takes place within the Godhead, but the oneness that takes place with an individual and the Lord. There's no solitariness to it. It's always a group thing. Here's what Jesus said. He's praying in John 17. This is towards the end of his ministry. He's in this upper room, and it's his last conversation with his guys before he leads them out and then gets arrested, before he gets crucified. He prays for the people. Christianity, we've called it the high priestly prayers. Jesus prayed for the disciples. But if you look in verse 20 of John 17, he also prays for you and me. He says, I don't ask for these only, meaning the disciples in the room, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. And what does he say? What is he praying for us? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us and that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you see that the unity that he's describing is essential? It's as essential as the unity between himself and the Father. That if you come to know the Lord, you are immediately being introduced to his people. You can't get out of it. Jesus prayed it. He prayed it. For not just the 11 that were left in that room. He prayed it for all who would believe in their word, what they would write, the New Testament, that, that those who would become his through their testimony over the millennia would be one in him. So how's that going? How's that going? How, how is that going for you? What's the appeal there? Are you into it? Sunday morning, you got to make a call. You're going to church, you're going to the slopes. You're going to church, you're going to just stay. Is it, what's the call? 
How often do you say, well, I can't miss. I got to see my people. I, I'm as excited to get there as to get to a birthday party, to get to, to get to like some wonderful thing with people I like. Is that your experience? Well, you're new. Okay, give it a second. But, but is that what you're looking forward to? Remember how that psalm ended. There the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Are you experiencing something similar in our collected organization? Well, let's get into it. I want to understand why this is so good. Because I think if we can understand the why, you'll, you'll start to implement the how. And as the, the life goes on, as, as the year progresses, you'll start to see this thing really unfold and be what Christ prayed that it would be, to be what we need together. So what is, what is this love supposed to look like? Why is it good? Well, the other people in this room, unique among all the peoples of the world, are going to be the people who love what you love. They're going to be the people who convince you. They're going to be the people who lift you and they're going to be the people who gift you. Woo, you ready? That they love what you love, they convince you, they lift you, they gift you. So what does it mean that they love what you love? How do you make friends now? You know, you have kids and you watch kids interact with other kids. And for kids to just see another kid is enough. You know, Rachel and I might go somewhere. We're going to try and do whatever we're doing. There's other kids in the area. Our kids will go find those other kids. They'll do whatever they're doing. And then afterward, we're leaving. Did you have fun? Yeah. Well, oh, I saw you. Were you playing with those other kids? Yeah. What were their names? <laughs> Not only they have no idea, they have contempt for the question. Like, why would that matter? They were kids. I'm a kid. They're kids. We played. What would it matter what their names were? We already had enough in common. Like, for children, it's enough to see other children. But as you get older, of course, it's different. I've never walked into a coffee shop and said, Coffee? Coffee! It doesn't matter your name. We're already so close. And just tried to really get to know them well. Of course not. You walk into a coffee shop now, it's all furtive glances. Everybody's, I heard a person say it's like being back in the monkey cage. Everybody's just, you know, nervous. And no, I wasn't looking. Were you looking at me? I wasn't looking at you. Back off. I'm trying to type. I'm important. You're important. No, you're important. I'm important, you know. And there's no camaraderie taking place. The way that you become friends now is by having something specific and common that you love. And it's not enough for it to be coffee. It's usually, in our case, kids. You know, the people that we end up being friends with outside of Hope Church are people who have kids the same age as our kids. So we get very passionate about their lives and what they're enduring. And we watch these other adults who have the same passions and the same fears about their kids. And so we get to know each other in the hopes that we can find good friends and good examples for our kids. And we talk to these people and they share our fear of cell phones and social media. They share our hopes for the child's development. As we, as we walk through life together, as we go to the dance concert together and we experience this stuff together because of a shared love, these are our friends. Do you understand that in the church, what you have is a love in common that is much more intimate, that is much more relevant, that is much more important than your kids? 
Your love of God and their love of God mean that at the core of who you are, you're the same. And that's only here. Yeah, by God's grace, there's churches all over the world. But I'm saying the one that you join, because you can only join one. You can't be a member of 10 churches. You got to be one. So when you're in a church, the people that are in that church, those are your people. And those people, if you could scratch down to the heart of who they are, get past their background, get past their language, get past their sports teams, get past their, I don't know, weird smells, and just get to the core of who that individual is, you find that your core, their core, the same. That's an exciting thing. Man, you, when you're here... Meet other people who love what you love. Ephesians 6 ends. The book of Ephesians. Paul is writing to this church. And as he's finishing his letter, he says, Peace be to the brothers and love and faith from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. What's the thing that binds a love of, of God. Why are we all here together? We're not good people that are centered together around a shared sort of list of morals. I think people think that's what churches are. We're not. We're not bad people that are all gathered together, kind of helping each other through a recovery program. And our lives are lived in the negative. We're all together because we never want to do this again. Yeah. Some people come to church because they have something like that. I get it. But that's not what a church is. What a church is is not a negative. What a church is is a positive. We're all people who together have said, this is what life is, and I love it. Not it. I love him. I know him. I'm here under his orders. I'm going to be your friend under his orders. And by, by knowing that you love him too, I'm going to find that our hearts are going to like knit together really easy. They'll go together together because they're of the same substance now. That's what a church is. A church is a group of people who have been saved by the, the Jesus that we preach from the, the Bible that, that have believed what he taught the most beautiful image, or one of the most beautiful images in the New Testament is Jesus giving sight to the blind. Why? Because he doesn't just give them sight. He's also the thing that they see. <laughs> Process that. He doesn't just give them sight. You're not just here to get fixed and then go look at whatever you want. He, he is the thing they then see. I love that image of him pulling the mud off the eyes of this person and then they open their eyes and what do they see? Jesus, what's the point of giving them sight? It's not so they can drive. It's so that they can see him. And of course we know. Of course we understand that that was all to show us that our, we're blind. Our hearts are blind. Read Isaiah. You don't know him. You don't know God until he gives you sight. But he doesn't give you sight so you can run off and go be productive. He gives you sight so you can see him. Of course, he uses you in a million different ways, but it's all in the context of your relationship with him. When you're here, you're around other people that love what you love. And they convince you. Man, it's hard when you live a life where everybody else, where the dominant sort of theme of the culture, 
with the entertainment that you engage with, with the, the intellectual kind of climate that you live in, with the work that you produce in, all have either a secular tinge or an out-and-out -out secular ideology where the people that you interact with are very kind. I'm not saying that because they're secular, they're monsters. We all know our hearts. We could be worse morally. I'm saying that when you're around people that don't love what you love, there's a part of you that starts to wonder if you really do believe what you believe. What I love about being here, among many things, is that I get to see other people who are convinced of what I'm convinced of, who have intellectually decided and assented to what I have intellectually decided and assented to. It's a little bit difficult to believe what we say we believe sometimes. If you felt relief as we were singing the songs we sang this morning, it's because there was a part of you that wasn't sure if those things were really, really true. That's one thing to like celebrate them and joy again because it's a good thing and you're feeling joy because of joy. It's another thing to be like, I don't know, and then to sing it and then partway through start to feel the relief of going, you know what, yeah, yes, that is true. There's a place for me. I am a child of God. I don't feel like it. I feel like a sinful dude, but I am a child of God. Yes, yes, that is true. I'm convinced again a little bit more. A Christian lives by faith. What do we mean by that? We mean that you are choosing to accept ideas that naturally you wouldn't accept. Here's what I mean by that. So there's a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I can't spell pickle, but I can spell Dietrich Bonhoeffer. <laughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian in Germany during the time of the Third Reich. And he's known to us for several reasons, but one, because he was uh, a prolific writer and, and was involved with a plot to try and remove Hitler, to kill Hitler, so that Germany could be freed and the church in Germany could become a light of the gospel again. And he started a secret seminary where he was going to raise up people to understand the Bible and believe in. And in this secret seminary, they had this wonderful life together. And he wrote about it in a book, Let, 50 pages, called Life Together. So I'm preaching on love. I thought, man, let me read this again. And in it, early, he's talking about how we, we live with this received identity that's true because of what Christ said, not necessarily because of what we see in our life. And it's something that we have to keep believing. So it's something that we need the church to keep convincing us of. Here's what he says. Christians no longer live by their own resources, by accusing themselves and justifying themselves, but by God's accusation and by God's justification. They live entirely by God's word pronounced on them in fruit, uh, faithful submission to God's judgment, whether it declares them guilty or righteous. The death and life of Christians are not situated in a self-contained isolation. Rather, Christians encounter both death and life only in the word that comes to them from outside. From the outside in God's word to them. It's often the church that can continue to convince you of these things. We talk about the sociology of epistemology. We talk about you think what you think because you like certain people and they think that way. I know that's not always true and it's not very reasonable, but that's how the human heart often works. Well, get around people who believe what you believe that will then help to convince you of what you have chosen to believe. Find people that you think are smart and cool 
within the church that have your same convictions. May not be this church. Hey, you guys are cool enough for me, but you may be way cooler than us. You may see us as uncouth. You may think Hope Church has no couth. You need couth and you got to go other places. I understand. Find a place. But when you find these people and really love them well, you're going to find people who will affirm what you have believed in Christ, that, that he is the one who has declared you righteous. You're going to start to understand. It's kind of weird how when somebody in the church tells you, ah, man, they, they don't feel forgiven, you can immediately go, no, you are forgiven. You're forgiven in Christ. There's nothing you've done that he didn't know about before he goes to the cross. Of course, there's, there's no sin you committed that's beyond the blood of Christ to, to cleanse. You can, you can preach grace to that person. It's easy when it's their sin. It's not easy when it's your sin, right? Well, let, let you be the other for that person. Let you be the one that's easy so that they can speak into your life and say, no, no, it is God who accuses and it is God who justifies. In Christ, you're forgiven. They convince you. They love what you love. They convince you, but they also lift you. It is Christians who have, by God's grace, gifting that allows us to be lifted. Uh, recently, we were talking about things we wanted to see in the new year. And the kid said, I want to grow in selfishness. And we all kind of waited because we knew what they were saying was selflessness and they were just having a hard time like putting it together well. But I thought it was funny to say, well, I really want to grow in, in selfishness this year because it's not hard to grow in sin, right? Like the hard thing is to go the other direction. The hard thing is to go away from what you naturally want to do. It's not difficult to grow in selfishness because if you don't do anything, you grow in selfishness, right? Do you know that about yourself? If you don't put effort in, do you get better or worse? So if we're going to see ourselves change, if the God that we love is going to start to change our community, boy, it's going to take some effort, isn't it? Here's what's fearful. You keep reading the Psalms, man. I hope that you do. Here's another Psalm, Psalm 81. It says at the end of the Psalm, my people didn't listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies. I'd turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and, his, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock. That's a song we sing. I would satisfy you. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm in and I'm terrified. He's saying that if, if you're disobedient and you continue in that disobedience, there's a point at which your stubbornness is sort of like allowed to you. That the great curse of God is to go and do what you want to do. To allow that natural process, not towards selflessness, but towards selfishness, to continue and to like... Go to its full fruitfulness, which is death. But if we would listen to him, he'd subdue our enemies. He would feed us with the finest of the wheat. With honey from the rock, he would satisfy us. So that's, that's our command. That's what we want to do with our lives. Who will help us in this task? 
By God's grace, that's what the church is for, to lift you up in that way. Oh my gosh, so again, we're running out of time, but Chesterton talks about the romance of orthodoxy. That, that you're given the gospel when you come to Christ and that it's your job to then like hold that gospel, whatever else is going to happen for the rest of your life. And some people think of orthodoxy as boring. Orthodoxy is a word that means right belief, right glory towards God, like right understanding of who God is. Well, orthodoxy is not supposed to change. I mean, that's part of what's interesting about being a pastor is like coming up with new ways to say the same things because we don't say new things. You say new things, that's when Mr. Hobbs tells you that you're not listening to the Bible and he commands everybody to leave. You, you got to preach the same things. Orthodoxy doesn't move. Well, what's, what's interesting about that? What's interesting about that is that orthodoxy doesn't move, but everything else does. And Chesterton talks about the romance of orthodoxy because he watches as the church marches down the centuries and as everything else goes freaking out and falling apart, the church stays right there. That's a quote that's too long, but he, he talks about how the church in every attitude has the grace of statuary and the accuracy of arithmetic. Oh, no, you guys need to read Chesterton. All right, so they hold you up. They love what you love, they convince you, and they lift you. Lastly, they gift you. What's another reason that you should care about this place, that you should care about these people? It's from these people that you met Jesus. Don't forget that. May not have been Hope Church. For some of you, it was. May not be Hope Church. But it's from the church that you heard the gospel. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 10. How are they going to hear I'm sorry, how are they going to call on him and whom they have not believed? Well, that makes sense. How are they going to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Well, that makes sense. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Uh-oh. And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, this bleeds a little bit over into next week when we talk about multiply. But right now, what does it mean? It means that you owe the church. It was the other Christians who spoke the gospel to you. And no, you don't really owe them. God made it really clear that we give the gospel freely because we heard it freely. But you heard it freely because somebody spoke the gospel to you. Why do you love your mother? She gave you life. Man, you love the Lord because the Lord gave you life. You're going to glorify God because he saved you. But he chose to save you through the preaching of his people. And he did that on purpose. I think part of the reason that he did that is that you might always remember that this was the place where you heard the gospel. This was the place where you heard about your sin before a holy God. This was the place where under that condemning word that you are separated from God, you then heard that God by his grace sent his son to die in your place. This is the gospel message. I hope you know it. It's the idea that Jesus being perfect became a man didn't disobey the law in any way, but obeyed it fully and then died a sinner's death that sinners might be able to receive his perfect righteousness and not have to pay for the debt that we owe. That substitution took place. But if you never heard it, how can you believe it? And the way that you hear it is because somebody in a church somewhere decided that they would be faithful to speak. They would be faithful to speak because somebody had lifted them up. They would be faithful to speak because somebody had continued to convince them. 
They would be faithful to speak because a community that loved what they loved shared that gospel with them. You got to be here. I don't know what your commitments are this year. Number one needs to be abide. It needs to be you and the Lord. But number two, you got to be here. I understand there's weeks where people are sick. I understand there's weeks where you're going to go ski because, you know, it's like you live here and maybe once or twice or however often you're going to do that. But we need you. I need you. I need you to convince and to lift and to gift me. I want to be here to do those things for you. Are you going to be here? Listen, are you going to seek out other Christian relationships within Hope Church? Don't be dumb enough to think that that means programs. It doesn't. A program is a means to the end of relationship. If you've already got relationship, don't seek programs. Seek people. Who do you know in Hope Church and how are you serving that person? What does mentorship look like? It's a biblical idea. It's not a business idea. It's a biblical idea that you would find somebody and say, help. (laughs) I'm trying. And, you know, we pay the bills, but like, help. And an older Christian would go, ooh. Hopefully in humility they would say, ah. But, you know, let's try. And out of love you would start to walk together. Who's your Paul? Who's ahead of you that you talk to? Who's your Timothy? Who's behind you that you take care of? Who do you invite over? Who do you invite over and and cook for them? They never ask you to be a mentor, but you just love them. So how's things? And you just listen. You know people behind you always think that they're as busy as they could possibly be. And you know when you were there, you thought that too. And then, you know, you had kids or whatever. Like, then life got even more crazy. But, but when you look back and you see those people, you know that their cup's full. Why don't you come alongside them and help hold it up? Who do you do that with? Programs are a means to that end. Community groups are a means to that end. Are you in a community group? If you are, then you have a regular, smaller group that you're going to be interacting with and hearing the gospel together. Man, that's a great group for you to go, man, maybe I can start caring for some of these people. I think you know what to do with this. Will you? If it's good, won't you? Part of what's broken in us is that we have to discipline ourselves to the good. Will you discipline yourself to this? Man, the church is a beautiful place. Jesus calls it his bride. That's something beautiful. I know there's been ugly brides, but even an ugly woman on her marriage, on her wedding day, she looks great. She glows. You may not want to marry her, but she's glowing. (laughs) Jesus called this his bride. Won't you love his bride? Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we've got a whole year that we're kind of looking at because it's January. And we've got a lot to kind of think about. We've got to kind of evaluate. What, what do we care about? What do we value? Lord, if we are people who have undervalued the church, who see Sundays as an opportunity to hear a message, to engage with some kind of music and children's ministry, and then to be set down until the next week. And instead of seeing church as a vital community, they see it as a program. I pray that you would give them grace, that you'd wake them up, that you'd let them enjoy all the money that they're just leaving on the table. And for those that have tried that and been burned, 
because things have been difficult and relationships got really real, I pray that you would give us the grace to try again, that you would give us the grace to endure again, that we would trust you, not people, and that we might be some of the change we're hoping to see. Lord, I pray that you would draw your church together as one. And in that brotherly love, you would show the world the beauty of who you are. We love you, sir. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.